Welcome to Off the Film Path. Here we review and discuss movies that, for better or for worse, are less known to the general public. Today we're discussing 2017's Killing Hasselhoff. I'm Kyle. And I'm Sophia. Sophia, I I really like this movie. Just to start us off. I did too. I will say that it is a broy meathead comedy, but it doesn't pretend to be something it's not, and I really appreciate that. Exactly. You were telling me something about uh, the director that's somewhat relevant to this whole thing. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So the director of this movie is Yui Boll, and Yui Boll is a German schlock director. This might be the most meaningful movie that he's ever directed. His oeuvre contains such fine feature films as Rampage, President Down. I bet that's interesting. Dragon Dog. Can't wait to see that one. And something called Blubberella, which eh, we're not doing that one. We're not. I'm not going there. It's it's a cheap shot. It's gross. So let's hop right in. Weird thing right off the bat is there are so many title cards. So many. It's a Brechtian technique. It comes from the tradition of Bertolt Brecht, who was a I believe he was German playwright, and he used title cards and other techniques to break immersion so as in a, as opposed to dramatic theater which came before it which attempted to put you in the story that you're observing brechtian theater also called epic theater sought to demonstrate to you that what you're watching is just a show these are not by the way original observations i'll put sources in the like i'll have a source document for this awesome yeah we start at the end what better place to start yeah, we jump in in media res with voiceover. It's a discordant soundtrack. So the the picture that we see on screen is David Hasselhoff holding a katana in what I think most white people assume is a ready position with a katana, except I think the blade is facing the uh, the wrong direction. But either way, he's got his war face on. He's got his katana in a ready position and he's talking very excitedly in voiceover about his superhero musical. We'll get to that. And then the main character gets shot in the chest and is dying on Hoff's bedroom floor. And then we do. Oh, go ahead. I did write a direct quote because I was really surprised that they actually did this. He says, uh, this is Ken Jong's character. He's the main guy in voiceover says, you're probably asking yourself how I got in this situation. Burr? Yeah, there is a record scratch later that I noted, but it would not have been out of place here. No, no, it wouldn't have. So I have here, so this movie does a bad job of showing instead of telling. It shows some. And again, these are not original observations. It shows some, but uh, oh boy, does it tell a lot. So we jump back. Is it? It's like three days. Uh, I think it's about a week. And uh, we have like, Okay, the second time I watched this movie through, the end of that narration bit starts with like, it ended up being one of the worst weeks of my life. And the second time through, I was just like, good, you're an asshole. <laughs> so we meet Chris, our main character, played by Ken Jeong. We meet Tommy, who's a very close friend of his, played by Australian comedian Jim Jeffries. Mm -hmm. We also meet Ron Funches, who is not that relevant to the story, but he's fun to be there. Yeah, he is 
he's always there when things seem dire, except unless there is action occurring. Like when things are dire in a way that doesn't really have a lot of stakes. Yeah. We get more narration where Chris lays out his entire character motivation for this movie. He desperately needs money. Yeah, he's uh, he's not good with money. He owns a, a Hollywood nightclub, so you know he's a douchebag, that is on the verge of failure because he's a douchebag. And on top of it all, he's part of a celebrity death pool with Tommy and the gang. Uh, in case it's not incredibly clear what that means, they all put in money, and whoever celebrity dies first gets the money. Yeah, so when they started, it was not all that much. It was about $9,000. At the current moment in the movie, it's worth a shade over half a million dollars. We also meet Chris's fiance, Anne, and she seems very disgusted about this whole thing and especially Chris's behavior, which made me wonder why they're even together in the first place. So one of the things that I noted about this scene specifically, but the movie more generally, is there's a lot of toxic behaviors between Chris and his group of friends, including his fiance, and it's played for a joke. And, and like, I spent a long time trying to fit into a culture similar to this. I get how like that actually can build camaraderie. It also builds a lot of stress and uh, a lot of strained relationships. So it's not good. It's, it's a toxic masculinity. They're doing a toxic masculinity and Anne is doing it too. They talk a little bit about getting married and Ron Funches butts in because they mentioned something about at this rate that all they can afford is a Chuck E. Cheese. And he goes, that would be pretty awesome. And I, I agree with Ron Funches if it weren't for being literal Chuck E. Cheese. Like just having a reception at a barcade sounds pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. A reception at a barcade is, is awesome. Having the wedding there, a little less awesome, but I think doable. Yeah. It is at this point that we realize that Jim Jeffries, for some reason, is doing an American accent this entire movie. He's a reality TV producer. He could get away with being Australian, but instead he does an American accent the entire time. And it's a teensy bit distracting because he's Australian, which, you know, okay, my third bachelor's was in linguistics. So this is a thing that that kind of bugs me a little bit. Most English accents are highly non-rhotic. So Jim Jeffries' actual accent would not have an R sound in the middle or at the end of most words. They'd have it at the beginning. So words like roticity, you would have an R in there. So it's not a sound that, that like Australians are really used to doing medial and terminal Rs. So... It's very distracting to hear it because one thing that, that English speakers tend to do when they're doing an American accent is overplay their roticity. So we get a lot of Jim Jeffries. Uh, he can hit most of them, but when it comes to the R's, he's like, all right, I'll, I'll talk to Anne and, 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 you know, ah, blah, 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 blah. You know, he, he hits the R's a little too hard and it's a teensy bit distracting, but good on him. It's mostly convincing and I know it takes a lot of work. It actually takes about five years for American children to learn how to do it right. So, oh, I think I have heard him in other contexts, so I kind of just papered over it in my mind. Yeah, half the time I actually heard him in his actual accent, which he a little bit slips back into uh, here and there. Yeah, but this takes us to a 
member of the group that is surprisingly important to the movie. Yes. Okay, so Paul the Fish Fishman is another member of the group. However, he was not at the re-ante. Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah. So Paul the Fish Fishman, played by Reese Darby. Uh, Reese Darby is a New Zealand, uh, he's a New Zealander, Kiwi, and he keeps his accent, which sounds like if you forced an Australian to inhale a bunch of helium and it only really came out in vowels. Yeah. Yeah. So this is fun. And also another toxic masculinity thing. The first thing out of Jim Jeffries' mouth was like, you think he killed himself? Hey, if you didn't kill yourself, open up. I'm just like, dude, what the fuck are you doing, man? Yeah. Fish opens the door and he is... Despondent? Train wreck? Yes. He opens the door and it's clear he hasn't gotten out of his pajamas in a couple days. Yes. So he explains that he found out that his girlfriend is cheating on him. But the way he found out is that he gained access to her Facebook account and looked at her private messages. So this is already not a good relationship. No. No, 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 no. So Fish goes through her private messages and finds that she's been exchanging messages, let's say, with a fellow named Sebastian. And this guy, okay, I am a full-blown, cold-blooded dyke. This guy is hot. Yeah, he is. My God. (laughs) This guy is a full-blown cock model. Okay, so in his Facebook profile, there's a picture of him with no shirt on, and he is just ripped. But also his banner image is he's wearing briefs, but I don't know exactly why, because his bulge is fucking enormous. I don't think I've ever seen a bigger dick in my life. Uh, And this is because, you know, men will be men. A big hanging up point for Fish. And then he reads the message. Uh, Sophia, you were particularly tickled by what the actual message was. Uh, Would you like to... I don't have it written down, but because I am a hugely damaged person, there was a moment where I had, like, I had one of those random moments of self-awareness as I was counting iams and dactyls in a throwaway dick poem joke in a movie about killing David Hasselhoff for money. Spoiler alert. Yep. Dick poetry. That's... Dick poetry. And, oh boy, it's not good. And because I I am here for you, the people, Fish makes a joke about how he has a tiny dick and his girlfriend hasn't really, like, been on it all that often recently, much less write poem and iambic pentameter about it, which of course made me go, that's not iambic pentameter, to which the demon inside me went, well, what the hell is it then? Friends? It is a variable meter poem, including amphibranches. It is in dactylic tetrameter for the first two lines, heptameter for the third line, dropping back to tetrameter for the last two lines. Uh, So a dactyl. If you have a three-syllable phrase, a dactyl is the first stressed syllable. So that's dactylic tetrameter. Good for triplets. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I'm not surprised that they say iambic pentameter both, because that's probably the only thing any of these characters would know. 
but also that's most recognizable to the audience. So can't fault them too much. Yeah. So for those of you who, unlike me, didn't do all that well in English lit or North drama, iambic pentameter is with two syllables, ba 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 and that's a line. That's iambic pentameter. So that's absolutely not what is happening here, which unfortunate, to be honest. Yes. Fish says he's got a little dick. Chris says he also has a little dick. And there kind of was a discussion of overcompensating. And I noted that this was probably going to be a theme in the movie. We're not that far in. And hey, we already got something of machismo. Yeah. And I, 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 I thought it was uh, refreshing that, you know, self-awareness was kind of played as a joke. Chris uh, mentions that, like, overcompensation is why he runs a Hollywood club. I'm like, yeah, sure. But uh, I also have here that Fish sees Sebastian as being in competition with him. And he is not stacking up in his own mind. Right. Which becomes relevant directly. Yes. There's also uh, a very curious thing. The way that Chris and Tommy talked to Fish, I was not sure if they had any genuine concern or if it was pure ulterior motive to get him back on the horse, so to speak. Yeah, that's kind of a uh, a thing with especially toxic behaviors is you can never tell whether people are, are genuinely caring for you or, you know, being a dick because you're pissing them off. And like, that's kind of the idea. So you can, you have that plausible deniability. People go, hey, man, you're being a dick. You're like, dude, I was just joking. There's so much that could be said about the just joking crowd. But I'd rather just talk about killing Hasselhoff, which has actual jokes. Yes, it does. So, yeah, they uh, they try to cheer Fish up by uh, by talking about David Hasselhoff's after party, which will be held at the club he is an investor in, Chris's club. And Fish asks if he's going to sing, and Chris at first answers yes, and then they both go, no, 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 no. <laughs> and I'm like, ah, you don't like the hop? I don't blame you. I don't like the hop singing either. Next scene, we're at the club. Tommy's talking to Anne and tells her, that he wants to have sex with her roommate, despite her being engaged. And I couldn't tell at this moment if Tommy was genuinely a creep, or if it was just the accent. Uh, yes, I think so. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I have in my notes here, why are monogamous people? Relationships are hard. I, I don't want to... Yeah, let's not let's go, let's not get too far into it, um, yeah. because there lies monsters that I don't feel like wrestling right now. This scene intercuts with Fish at his office for a night meeting, I guess. And Fish is just so down bad that he is hallucinating uh, his girlfriend and Sebastian. And there's a real good joke in here where he responds to the conversation that's in his head. And it fits well with the conversation that's actually happening. I think that's a great trope. Yeah, that's that is so much fun. And we also get to see the girlfriend for the first time because he hallucinates his girlfriend and Sebastian. And it's Katie Stoll of Crack.com. Well, formerly of Crack.com, currently of Some More News. I'll put that in the source document as well. But yeah, whomst we stand, we love her. So she has a uh, very special moment with Sebastian. Fish loses his mind and lunges at them, but it turns out that is the very elderly president of the company. And Fish goes away for a while. Yeah. 
Back at the club, we see Ron Funches again, and dude's just baked. I kind of thought the direction might have been, just be yourself. Yeah, yeah. Like, to the point where he's walking around with a big clump of weed just in his hair. I have in my notes that Ron Funches kind of looks like, when he smiles, he he reminds me a bit of uh, Chris Robinson. I can see it. Yeah, which which is a lot of fun. Obviously, they're they're two very different comedic styles, but still, just well, you could have put Chris Robinson in here, and it would be a, functionally the same movie. The character doesn't really contribute. Yeah, but he's fun. He's fun, and he's present for a bit. But yeah, so they're all at the after party for the Hoff, and John Lovitz, yay! calls him up and tells him that the Hoff has changed his mind. They're going to a different club. I love John Lovitz in this movie. I'm just going to say it. I have a thing in my notes here where I have like, I've, I've done a bit in my notes. So we need to publish these like Patreon perks or something. A character it like is the best part of this movie that I scratched down. I was like, he's okay. So I have John Lovitz is the best part of this movie scratched out. He's pretty good. At this point, just about everyone, the Hoff, Tommy, probably Ron Funches, is thinking with their dick. Oh, Fish is for sure thinking with his dick. Uh, the only person who is not is Chris, who is thinking with his shitty bank account because he really needs this night to go well. Yep, and he says so much. Like, everybody's like, it's going to be a big money night. And Chris is the only one who's like, it fucking better be. And the Hoff cancels on him. So it's not a big money night at all. I felt like they did a decent job of making Chris, like, we're sympathetic that he got screwed over. Yeah, like, he's a dirtbag, but we feel some sympathy for him. So, like, well done, movie. Uh, you figured out how to thread that needle, and uh, I, I'm here for it. The next crisis arises. There is a child star in the VIP room of Chris's club. When we get there, we see that it is full-on debauchery. They're doing coke, which 16-year-old shouldn't be doing coke. Quaaludes, which also not for 16-year-olds. This 16-year-old, upon meeting Chris, tries to have sex with him, and all of this is encouraged by her mother. Yeah, not great. So my notes say, oh right, here comes jaded youth. And like, it really, like, we're told leading up to the scene with the full-on debauchery that like, yo, this is a party for a 16-year-old girl. You're not supposed to be in this club. Right, and you, your signature is on it, so it looks bad. Events unfold that make Chris look very bad. He ends up getting like pushed and falls into a plate of coke. It looks like he's assaulting this child star. Yeah, at once he went Tony Montana on a mountain of cocaine and muff dived a teenager, or at least that's what it looks like. Yes. To jump back just a little bit, there was a funny line where he's trying to handle the situation, and he says that he is running a Judeo-Christian-friendly nightclub. And I said, that sure is a sentence. I'm so tired, I swear to God. What is that fucking... We don't have time to get into it. We just... No. We don't. Oh, we could no. be here all day if we tried to parse what the fuck Judeo-Christian means. It's not a thing. Nope. But yeah, so I have here that the mom is trying to get the crash-out child star to have some trouble for publicity's sake. And this kind of works. Yep, at the cost of this hapless club owner that I am super sympathetic to. I am, but only well, so. Well, 
I, I am a little bit inoculated against sympathy for the protagonist because like things have to go wrong. Otherwise it's not really a compelling story. So this is a little much though. Yeah. The next day he comes back to, I don't know if it's a shared house or if it's just Anne's house, but Anne is there and she is so upset at him. Yeah. She's rightfully furious, but I think it's unrealistic to, okay. So putting myself in Anne's position, if my partner came home while I was watching the news about them having done that, I would say, okay, well, that's TMZ's take. And like, it's different if it's on CNN. If it's on CNN, all right, that's fucked up. You need to get out. If it's TMZ, I'm going to ask their perspective on it because like, uh, no, no. Also, like they make a thing of like, everybody's heard about it. And like, nobody cares that much about club life, guys. Yeah. We then cut to a scene where Chris has to talk to his loan shark. But first we meet his bodyguard, who's played by an actor named Dan Beckedahl, who's in, like, everything. Love. Character actors get work, baby. Yeah. I know him best, perhaps, from a stint on Veep, recurring role. Uh, mm -hmm. He also had a small thing in season three of Community. Oh, that's right. Yeah. I recall that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he's great. I can't remember exactly what I remember him from. But, uh, yeah, we'll go with Community. Yeah. That works. We then meet the Lone Shark. His name is Wasserstein, and he's played by Will Sasso, who I know him best for being Curly in the Three Stooges reboot, but he's also in just a lot of stuff. Yeah, I've seen him around. I think he pairs well with Dan, whatever his name is. But yeah, so here is a, a, a gangster who is from Brooklyn, the son of a baker. He's a Brooklyn gangster who is a baker's son. His name is Wasserstein. Ah, okay. Yeah, he's Jewish. Uh, but he has a Buddhist affect. Yes. He has, like, a symbol on a necklace. Uh, but he also has a lot of clothing that speaks to that aesthetic, at least. And it looks very comfortable. <laughs> so I have an unattended back injury that has given me problems. So I don't like sitting arrangements that don't involve, like, a back to your chair. <laughs> I more meant the clothes. It looked very flowy. Yeah, yeah, the the clothes look very comfortable, but I mean, yeah, definitely. So so this is a gangster, and Chris owes him $400,000 today. And Chris was counting on the Hoff's party to, to help him out with that. So Wasserstein uses a story that he calls the Parable of the Loaves to describe why he will not be merciful. Fun. And... He describes a punishment that way does not fit a crime. And I was like, oh, this guy is, like, very conservative. And I, I actually, I want to push back on that because I don't know a single conservative. Like, I was raised conservative. My parents are very conservative. I don't know a whole lot of conservatives that are okay with, like, stealing a crust of bread. Like, these are people who watch Les Miserables and root for Javert. Cheapers, creepers. Yeah, so I'm not sure. I'll take your word for it, but like, I don't know any of these supposedly moderate conservatives. I know a few, but that's neither here nor there. Yeah. As a final threat, Nick, the bodyguard, shows a gun that he has in his belt loop. And I said, hey, more phallic symbolism, or imagery, I should say. Guns 
anytime a gun appears in film, it's like, hey, that's a dick. That's a dick. Chris leaves, but the scene continues for a little bit of just this back and forth between Wasserstein and Nick. It's very fun. It is a lot of fun. I thought they might have been brothers because they just they have that dynamic. But I have like it's not talked about. Right. So Chris is back in his club. He has to clean up. But also in I don't recall if this was narration or talking to Tommy. But he basically recaps his personal situation as if we didn't just watch the last 20 minutes of the movie. Yeah, he's actually talking to Tommy when he does this. And it's very tiring. But this is a movie that you're not supposed to invest a lot of brain power into. So like you and I thinking critically about movies, this is not (laughs) meant for that. This is meant to get like extremely drunk and or high and watch it with like a bunch of guys who are like too busy playing drinking games to really watch the movie. So he also mentions that Fish is under a 5150 order. Now, if you're from Florida, or if you've ever lived in Florida, you might be familiar with the Baker Act. And that's sort of like the California equivalent of a Baker Act. Uh, If you're not, a 5150 allows certain authorities to place an individual who may be a harm to themselves or others on an involuntary 72-hour psychiatric hold. So Fish is locked away, which was pretty much Chris's last hope to get the money. Yeah. So Chris is cleaning up the... Power shuts off on him. He hits the breaker. We see sparks, which will then make sense for what happens next. Yeah. In between, he goes out to take the trash, and we meet a delightful homeless man. (laughs) Delightful is exactly the way to put it. My notes here say, the bum is the best character in this movie. Struck out and like, he's okay. This is also a guy who has some fame as an actor. He was in Pitch Perfect 2. I think he shows up on, like, Comedy Central stuff. A decent amount. Yeah, I've seen him around, and I couldn't place him for the life of me, but he does have a delightful German accent, and <laughs> so he's digging through the trash and finds a poster from the after party, the Hoff, and he's like, oh, David Hasselhoff, this will this will get me many Deutsche Marks on the market, and stuffs it in his pants. This man is also very expressive, very wide-eyed. Yes, very intense character. But, uh, you know, one, two, skip a few. Chris offers the bum a drink, and only to find out that his club is on fire. And he is offered a pity squeezer from a German bum, and that's not rock bottom. The way this movie was going, I kind of thought Chris was going to be accused of insurance fraud. Yeah, honestly, I kind of... No, you know what? That would have solved his problems. No. What? So think about it this way, right? If you have a gangster who is going to kill you, if you don't pay him the money, the safest place you could be is under government surveillance. Okay. So winding up in jail may not keep you safe permanently, but it'll allow the gangster time to move on. (laughs) Yeah. We go back to Anne's house because Chris really has nowhere else to go. Yeah. And he gets in a fight with the with the next door neighbor. Yeah. Neighbors suck. Yeah. And that's almost the bottom of the barrel. He loses a fight with an 85-year-old granny out there spraying her bushes. And that's almost the bottom of the barrel. He walks in and Tommy comes out butt naked. And 
Chris jumps to the conclusion that Tommy and Anne had sex. Because last he saw Tommy, Tommy assured him that he'd talk to Anne and tell him that he did not, in fact, diddle kids, which makes this look real bad. And Tommy recognizes this and starts doing that thing that people who, I guess, get caught cheating do, where they're like, wait, nope, hang on, nope, nope. And at this point, out comes Anne from taking a shower. And I, I have noted here that like it's the most realistic reaction to that actually happening. Because like in in most like nineties sitcom movies, you something like that happens and like everybody's screaming back and forth at each other and it just gets really confusing. Instead he's just like, Jesus Christ, this you pick right now to come out of the shower. And I was like, I appreciate that. That's that's more realistic than the shouting. So Chris storms out because he's very upset. We find out that Tommy just had sex with Susan. Fulfilling his whole goal for the movie. Character <laughs> arc completed. Yep. Thinking that your one remaining buddy is fucking your fiancé? That's rock bottom, friends. With nowhere else to turn to, Chris visits Fish in the psych ward. Fish has taken to wearing a false mustache and is now best friends with his hallucination of Sebastian. I don't want to say all the jokes of this movie because I think people should watch it. Yeah. Uh, but there is one I do want to highlight that is, uh, it does become a running theme throughout this movie, but Chris is saying his problems and he goes, Anne is fucking Tommy. And Fish interprets that as Anne is Tommy. <laughs> <laughs> and exclaims wildly and then calms down when he realizes that makes no sense. The theme being, so much of this movie is assumptions and misunderstandings. And I don't know if there's too much more thematic to it than that makes for good comedy. It's a comedy of errors. Yeah. But like a lot of this movie uh, relies on misunderstandings and it works out very well. Well, and people just sucking at it, whatever it happens <laughs> to be. Yeah. Fish helps Chris plan how he is going to kill David Hasselhoff because Chris has made this decision that that is the only way he can get the money. And the first couple ways that Fish suggests are actually murder weapons from Clue. That was fun. And they only get stranger from there. Like, you, you say to yourself, well, rope, candlestick, We're like, okay, I can kill somebody with those. Um, horse accident. Does he like horses? Do you know? Bullfight? Hard to arrange. Chris goes to leave and is stopped multiple times by Fish in a great series of gags. Yeah. So one of my... I have a, a bit of a, a patience issue, but I will say that even despite the fact that this gag drives me absolutely bug-fuck-insane, I do love it. Where the person is almost gone and they get called back for something... And this happens like four or five times, like just way too many times. You have to walk all the way back. We then are at David Hasselhoff's house. Because Chris has to gather intelligence on his target. Yeah. So we see Hoff at his house and his agent, John Lovitz, comes out trying to get him work. And I, my notes say we are all John Lovitz. Because... David Hasselhoff does not want to do any of the work suggested and wants to go off and do whatever he wants to do. In this case, making a superhero musical. This is his passion project. <laughs> and he fights for that. He fights for that thing the entire movie. And John Lovitz is like, 
this is a bad idea. This is a silly idea. Attainable goals, David. I appreciate, though, that he's very much an ass kisser, as a good agent should be. Maybe. Mm -hmm. I don't know. But he does try to, like, Aikido his client's ideas into actually productive avenues. And then at some point, though, you do have to be like, David, I love you. Read the fucking scripts. That being said, of all possible actors that could be in a superhero musical, David Hasselhoff is not the worst choice because at least he can sort of sing. He is certainly one choice. Okay, so my exposure to David Hasselhoff's music began in the middle of a rather miserable deployment. I was I was sitting around on watch one day, and the guy who was standing watch next to me goes, hey, 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 you know David Hasselhoff? I'm like, yeah, vaguely, Knight Rider, Baywatch, that guy? He's like, yeah. So do you know he's a big musical star in Germany? I was like, shut up. So he sends me a link to a music video. Oh, baby, this is bad. This is bad. Like, we laughed. I felt like I had done just so many drugs and was was just tripping balls because there's no way that I was what I was seeing was real. David Hasselhoff's music for Americans is, there's no other word to describe it, but surreal. Maybe I'll check it out just to drive myself insane. I'm gonna put it in the source document. <laughs> Heck yeah. We wrap up this scene with Hasselhoff and John Lovitz going off to a signing, and then we cut back to Anne's house because the loan shark has come to collect. Yes, and I appreciate, you know, it's a bit of a, I will say that it, I feel like it's a reference to the rabbi in Lucky Number Slevin, but I appreciate the uniqueness of a gangster that is polite. Yes, he's very at ease. I think it's fun. Yeah. He tries his best to, I don't think his point is to actually keep Anne calm. Although, you know, from the perspective of him, if you go in there and you're like, okay, well, I have questions and I need answers. The last thing you want is somebody blubbering and dribbling snot all over the table instead of answering your questions. So to an extent, I can see it. But yeah, I, I, he's, he's exceedingly polite. He starts the interrogation with deep breathing exercises, <laughs> which I thought was very funny. But he did, he did, he does have a line in here. And I want you to, I'm going to put the lines side by side with the lines from the rabbi from Lucky Number 11. And I want you to tell me if you, if you notice a similarity here, because it jumped to my mind. So from Lucky Number 11, you have the rabbi who, who thinks that the main character is a guy named Nick Fisher. He says, consider Mr. Fisher. There are two men standing beside you, one of whom you should be very afraid of. Where's my money? And that's like, okay. So he's like polite. He's urbane and, and uses, you know, uses a lot of ungangster like vocabulary. And this guy says, don't let my tranquility fool you. I'm a bad man who does bad things to good people. So I don't know. I, I feel like there's a, I feel like there's a similarity. And I suppose like between tone and body language, I do see some similarities between the two, and I'm not sure I'm ready to call it a direct reference, though. No, I also think I've seen in other things comedy arising from the disparity between what we imagine gangsters to be very threatening and the tone adopted. So mm -hmm. I could see it just not being a direct reference, as you said. Yeah. 
We have to remind the audience that Chris is bad with money. He has nothing to his name except a terrible bank account. And, like, I will grant you that, like, if we hadn't been told this directly before, this would be more fun. Because there is a point, and there is a little bit of acting in here, where Wasserstein says, like, are you joking? He doesn't have any investments, no 401k, no retirement funds. And 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 it's just like, no, unless David Hasselhoff drops dead, he's destitute, which moves the plot along. Yeah, lets the gangsters know that David Hasselhoff must die. <laughs> yeah. They get the information they need, they leave, again, in a very polite way. Yeah, it was funny. He was like, uh, do you want me to leave the door open or closed? And, and she's just crying because she's just been held up at gunpoint by a gangster. He's like, I'll just leave it open. <laughs> and then they kind of screw off and get staked. We then come to David Hasselhoff's uh, signing event. On Venice Beach. But just before we get there, we see him in Kit discussing with his agent his career and personal stuff and whatnot. And I realized at this point that the Hoff would respond to the question, would you fuck your clone with an emphatic yes? I honestly think he wouldn't understand the question because, like, obviously, why, how, how, what? Yes. <laughs> Are there people who wouldn't? Between shots in this scene, shots that come later, and just throughout this whole movie, it was abundantly clear to me that someone, probably the director, was really horny for David Hasselhoff. Oh, God. Yeah. Or somebody, anyway, because there's a lot of unnecessary chests in this movie. Yep. There's just so much chest. And a not inconsiderable portion of it is very hairy. Which is gross to me, but I get it. Some people dig it. Whatever. So yeah, we go we cut to Venice Beach, which Chris Chris assures us is a batshit place. And having been to Venice Beach, I don't disagree, but also like cool it. It's not that bad. Yeah. Chris's plan to kill Hasselhoff in this moment is to give him a pizza covered in shrimp because he has a shellfish allergy. And he mixes the shrimp into the pizza in the most disgusting scene I have ever seen in my entire life. It is quite unpleasant. It, it's vile watching him massage the shrimp into this pizza. Yeah. He tries to make his way to Hoff as quickly as he can, but he ends up Basically cutting line, and Baywatch fans go apeshit on his ass. So I have in my notes kind of a callback from the last episode. Talk shit, get hit. Because Chris decides he's going to talk to a large black man by comparing him to Fat Albert. And like, maybe don't. Don't do that. <laughs> don't do that. But he gets his ass beat, does not accomplish his goal. We move on to... Meeting my favorite character, he is the hitman hired by Wasserstein, played by Colton Dunn, who currently is perhaps best known for playing Garrett in Superstore. So, yeah, he to me, he looks like a, a bargain bin LL Cool J, but I mean that in a good way. I have in my notes, the hitman is the best character in the movie, scratched out. No, that's right. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah, this guy is amazing, and I love him so much. He swaggers into the scene, takes the bodyguard's cake, and starts eating it, and is just 
takes control of the situation immediately. It's great. Yeah. Rapid dominance. He says that his name is Redix, and when pressed for another name, compares himself to many mononym female singers like Madonna and Cher and Jewel. And at this point, my gaydar buried the needle. And as it turns out, in a couple of lines of dialogue later, we find out that Redix is very, very gay. And very attracted to David Hasselhoff. Yeah, I guess that's a thing. But yeah, so the way he puts it is, did your mama ever tell you not to judge a book by its cover? Look, I'm a hard motherfucker with anger problems who kills people for money. That's a hard motherfucking cover. But inside, it's a gay-ass book. I'm like... I love it. I'm a fan. Yes. <laughs> I don't remember exactly how it comes about, but Nick says to Reddix something like, You people are confusing. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I can't remember exactly what it was about. I think it might have been about uh, milk. Yeah. But he's, he's all like, You people confuse the hell out of me. He's like, Who, black people? No, gay people. Oh, yeah, I get that. That could be confusing to some people. <laughs> I thought that was really funny. Oh, my God. It's This dialogue is out of this world. Amazing. Amazing. Watch this movie, if for no other reason than this character. Tarantino who? Yeah, fuck Tarantino. <laughs> we'll get there. Don't you worry. I, I like his movies. But that's a whole other discussion. Uh, we get to the after party of presumably the signing. And I clocked a few things. Chris looks super suspicious mm -hmm. uh, before he gets his disguise. And even when he gets the disguise, he's pretty suspicious. There is a enlarged model of David Hasselhoff that was used in the SpongeBob SquarePants movie that he has. And I thought that was a neat little real world <laughs> detail. Also at this party is Michael Winslow. For some reason. Yeah. My guess is that they were both big in the 80s, so they kind of ran in the same circles. And it's like, all right, sure, they know each other. Yeah, so there's lots of um, dialogue in this that I don't imagine Michael Winslow as an asshole in real life, but it does paint him as an asshole out, out of character. A little more specifically, I think it paints him as someone who is always, quote unquote, on. Like he's always being the sound effects guy. Yes, yes. In fact, there is a throwaway line where he's like, do you have any idea how many orgies this guy ruined with his sound effects? <laughs> <laughs> Chris's murder attempt now is to combine grapefruit juice with medication for a very bad reaction. Yeah, so he mixes lorazepam, powderized lorazepam, in with our grapefruit juice, and it almost works. And then Michael Winslow does his Michael Winslow thing, chugs the entire goddamn thing. David Hasselhoff gives a speech, and I said, man, he can chew a scene. Yeah. Winslow is very unwell. David Hasselhoff rescues him and has Chris do the mouth part of CPR, mm -hmm. which then causes Chris to choke, and Hoff then saves him. This is relevant to establish that they have had actual contact. Yep, which comes up in the next murder attempt. <laughs> so at this point, the the he's basically out of ideas that are like clever or subtle and is now trying to buy a gun. 
So he goes to the shitty part of East L.A. to find a Latino gangster to buy a gun from. Before this happens, we kind of see the next day after the party. And... Oh, that's right. Yes. We see John Lovitz and he looks over and there's just a pair of boobs. (laughs) It's just a pair of boobs. And his eyes start to go a little wobbly. So he puts some visine in there and he sees clearly... And uh, <laughs> and this is where we get the record scratch. Yep, because the Hoff calls him on. Okay, this woman is clearly a a Pam Anderson lookalike. She has the like everything. She looks exactly like Pam Anderson, up to and including the like overly facelifts cheekbones, uh, facelifted cheekbones. And so he gets called on it by the Hoff and the objectively more attractive woman in a full bikini standing next to him. They all have a good laugh at, you know, the man who in reality is gay, but got caught. Yeah. Got caught staring at some boobies. Now, as Sophia said, uh, we follow Chris as he tries to find a gun in a rough part of town. Yeah. So he pulls over a guy dressed as a, stereotype of a latin gangster having interacted with many latin gangsters in my time i can say that like i did not buy it for a second this guy has exactly zero visible tattoos so that's a big red flag for me but yeah as it turns out like this guy gives him a little bit of shit when he asks for a gun he's like oh you think just because i'm latino i know where to get a gun and and he's like you know actually now that you say that back to me i hear it and like i don't mean any but he keeps like pushing and um Turns out that it's a white actor working on his Latin accent, which is, I will grant you, his Spanish isn't bad for a white guy. Although, it's not great for a white guy who lives in East L.A. I don't know. I thought it was ridiculous that they were like, oh, we're going to have racism, call out that racism, and then like subvert it in this weird way. I it, Yeah. It rubbed me the wrong way a little bit. It, did, it rubbed me the wrong way, too. But, I mean, it was like, movie. You were so close. You're so close. But I did like the fact that the the white guy did speak enough Spanish to make fun of this uh, interaction because about halfway through telling Chris off, he switches to Spanish. The only reason I noticed because I speak Spanish is that I was reading. I, I had subtitles on. And so it said in Spanish, all this stuff. And, and uh, he's like, oh, what else do you need? You need drugs. You, you need a good enchilada recipe. You, wanna, you want uh, directions to... Jorge Lopez's house. I was like, oh, that's actually okay. That, that that would be funny. He's like, haha, just kidding. I'm a white guy. But on the plus side, the white guy does sell guns. So Chris gets his gun and decides that he will gain access to the Hoff's house again by pretending to work at a pet store that Hoff uses for his birds. Or I guess I should say a veterinarian that Hoff yeah. uses for his birds. Yeah. So he sneaks his way into Hoff's place with a clever lie and then uh, sets up to kill the Hoff with a gun, which not not the best way to go about it, but okay. And he's interrupted by Tommy. Who somehow gets in the house. Never explained. Don't worry about it. It's all good. Yeah. But the gun goes off a couple of times, startling John Lovitz, but not hassling the Hoff. Oh, everyone in this scene has abysmal gun safety. Yes. Yes. Like, come on, dude. The trigger discipline is bad, resulting in several accidental discharges. Everyone 
So by everyone, Chris, Tommy, Reddix, Nick, Hasselhoff, and John Lovett are all in the house now. There's a real good joke where Hoff, upon seeing a bunch of people with guns, says, oh, you want Ted Nugent's house? It's just over the hill. Yeah, that was actually really good. I appreciated that joke. So yeah, chaos ensues, and I don't want to try to map the chaos. It's worth watching yourself. Mm-hmm. But we uh, we end up with a scene between Reddix and the Hoth, where Reddix is torn between his attraction to David Hasselhoff and his desire to complete the contract. Yeah, it's very charged. It's yeah, it is. It is charged. It is also. I thought it was. Um, I thought it was kind of nice that, like, at one point Hasselhoff's like, "Please don't rape me." He's like, "I don't." Do I look like a rapist? I'm like, "Love to my," and and like, yeah, he's he's trying to get the Hoff's consent, <laughs> which eh, not really possible when you have a gun to a person. But yeah, not not great. Like situationally, that's bad. And anyway, begging for consent is not good either. But like, better than the alternative. Just right. saying. <laughs> but there is something very fun in this scene that he is saying compliments to David Hasselhoff, but he's saying it in a very threatening manner. Mm-hmm. And, you know, comedy from incongruity, it's it's a good little bit. Yeah. And so he snaps out of it and decides he's going to complete the contract and uh, takes a couple of shots at Hasselhoff, who has a samurai sort of katana and deflects the bullets, one of which travels through Reddix's dick, which is, in his own words, the sexiest shit I've ever seen. Everyone makes their way into this room. Nick has a gun, and we are back where we started this movie. Yep, and it is at this point that Chris is perforated. He has a brand new hole in his chest and is tries to take a nap, and everybody's like, oh, he's dead. And he's like, oh, what? No, no, I'm not dead. I was just, just, just tired. It's worth noting, he took the bullet that was intended for David Hasselhoff. Yes. Showing character growth. Yeah. Um, <laughs> or something. <laughs> but, uh, but what keeps this scene from going any worse for the people is that Fish shows up. Remember Fish? Well, he's back. Yes. Chris is in jail and visits him, and we find out that Hoff posted his bail. Yep. And Anne also had something to do with this, although I can't off the top of my head remember exactly what. So Hoff convinces Chris to not do the death pool anymore, and... uh, But he'll invest in the club. Yeah, in exchange, he'll invest in the club. Oh, also, Wasistine is dead. Because of Hasselhoff's rabid fan base. Yes, so the... Oh boy. So the carnival folk that beat the shit out of Chris the first time went and handled Wasistine. uh, And that is all of that. So we end the movie way, way, way too... Way too late in the movie. Like this movie ended like three times. And then... So we end it with David Hasselhoff (sighs) singing in the club and it's just exhausting yes there is one other thing that's very absurd because chris is now out of the death pool they needed to fill in a spot 
and who takes that spot, but David Hasselhoff, who chooses himself. It's so bizarre and dumb. Like, yeah, I don't... Whatever, man. Whatever. I'm, I'm, I'm past it. I'm over it. I made some note that says, does owning a club make you unable to be a person? Because everyone interacts so weirdly in this last scene. No one be- is behaving like a person. Yeah, and honestly, having... Oh my god, it sounds like I've done so much in my life. I guess I kind of have. Having known a couple of club owners in my time, like, no, you're not capable of acting like a normal human being if you own a nightclub. It's just not a thing you can do. And the movie ends with, as you said, Hasselhoff singing. So, general thoughts. Let's do some analysis, kids! Yeah, so this... Being another comedy, this is a little bit arid on the analysis side, but there are a few things that I wanted to kind of bring up. First off, there's a subtle Caitlyn Jenner joke in there. Boo. Hate that. Hate her, but hate that more. Hoff at one point calls her, ya ol' motherfucker. And like, that's yikes. That's a little bit yikes. But one of the things that I wanted to bring up really was this character of Reddick's. He is um, he's an interesting subversion of gay characters in media that came before this, especially in the 90s. When you saw a gay character in film, they were almost always effeminate and ridiculous. You, you might use the term silly bitch to describe them. And so what got me thinking, like this character Reddit's got me thinking a little bit about Roland Barthes, a French philosopher and film theoretician who said to be modern is to know what is no longer possible so in a comedy where everybody is making fun of everybody and everything is toxic all the time always but you can't have a gay character who is a silly bitch understanding that that is no longer possible they they kind of went hard the other direction so instead of like a normal hitman who also sleeps with men, you have this like big dick energy motherfucker. Like this dude is going to break you in half, but also is gay as hell. And that kind of serves the same function. He's also, I would say, hypersexualized a bit, which is still a holdover from gay stereotypes. Also a problematic stereotype about black men. Uh, not a fan of that. Yeah. But. All in all, still the most interesting character in the movie by far. There are some Asian stereotypes as well. So like there's a point where Chris comes up to a dorky looking guy with his shirt buttoned all the way up. He has Mr. Miyagi glasses and his hair is slicked back. And he goes, he comes up to him and is like, hey, man, are you Korean? And uh, he says, no, I'm Chinese, dude. And Chris is like, close enough, and cracks him on the head. And like, I get that that's meant to be played for laughs, but that's meant to be played for white laughs. That's not a thing. Oh, I definitely thought it was making fun of white people who can't tell the difference. Yeah, no, it absolutely is. I don't think, if you were to if you were to screen this movie in Asia, that would not be something that people laughed at. A couple sort of thematic things I noticed that I didn't really prepare digging too much. The first is that violence begets violence. Yeah. The decision to kill Hasselhoff kind of tumbles into this greater thing. But other movies have done that much better. 
I, I think especially for the moment that we find ourselves in right now, this, the 10th of May, I think it it's an interesting way to talk about the idea of violence begetting violence and, you know, what it takes to break the cycle of violence. You can't, you know, violence your way out of a cycle of violence. It ends with an act of charity. And that's something that's easy to forget once you're in a cycle of violence. And I'm not going to get overtly political. I'm just going to say that that is a relevant message at this moment in history. Another one was that masculinity in success or lacking in one shows a lacking in another. So the fact that people feel that they are not successful is tied to feeling less masculine this is mostly expressed in fish yeah so it it is it is hard to look at the character of fish and not feel like really sorry for them because dude you're not in competition with sebastian like that game is already over if you look at it as a competition you lost a while back the the thing that that is actually happening here is just that you know, over time, a relationship has evolved in a way that was not beneficial for both parties, and one party split. I think, you know, she did it in a cowardly way, but yes, yeah, I, I also, like, you're not, you are not in competition with every other person with the same set of genitals, and, and it's important that you realize that. That also kind of comes up when Chris thinks that Tommy and Anne are sleeping together. Yeah, yeah. So the the miscommunication there is that Tommy had sex with Anne's roommate and not Anne. And this was like a thing that like even in Hasselhoff's house when Tommy talks him out of shooting Hasselhoff, like he he brings it up like, Well, you are fucking Anne. She's like, No, I was what are you talking about? I was fucking Susan. I told you like four hundred times. And like, that's an excellent point. Like it's it's well established in the in the movie that like there's no sexual chemistry between Anne and Tommy, but Tommy really wants a piece of Anne's roommate. So like it is kind of that same competition, that toxic competition syndrome between Tommy and Chris, or really anyone with a dick and Chris. You could slot any penis equipped person in the world into Tommy's place with the same exact reaction. Mm-hmm. The final thing that I kind of considered and um, didn't fully flesh out because why would i prepare (laughs) Uh, is that capitalism drives people to do extreme things chris is very much a victim of uh i don't know maybe he's not a victim i mean he kind of is so here's the way i've thought about it is the reason that chris goes to a dangerous gangster to get a loan is because he's not considered reliable enough by a bank to get a loan so Capitalism has this mechanism, the banks, in order to keep the lower classes low and the upper classes funded so they can, or the capitalists mm-hmm. funded so they can keep doing a capitalism. And so the bank has decided that Chris is not fit to be a capitalist and has, you know, denied him access to all the money. So, yeah, so there is, there's a lot of, capitalist gatekeeping here that pushes Chris into dangerous deals with bad people that wouldn't happen under a system other than capitalism. 
And if you're interested in how something like that might work, I would recommend Pyotr Kropotkin's The Conquest of Bread. It is an engaging read. It's not heavy. And it does make you think about everything in a different light. Before we get to more general thoughts, did you have anything else you wanted to discuss in terms of themes or analysis? Um, I don't think so. I think we, yeah, we covered, we covered, this is a, this is a movie with a lot of non-white people in it. And I appreciate, you know, it's, I think it's good representation. I think there are, as with any representation by white people of non-white characters, there's going to be things that like, you shouldn't do that. But I think overall, it's delicate and uh, it's, it's not what I would call an offensive or problematic movie for those reasons. Yeah. My sort of general thoughts, I spent a lot of this movie just pointing at the screen saying, I know that actor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There were, there were, this was definitely one of those movies that they wanted to be like the cameo thing. It's like, hey, remember Christian Bale? Yeah, but it's also not like A-list actors. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Christian Bale was brought up once, but uh, that was, you know, a bit. So, like, Michael Winslow was in this movie. Who else? It doesn't matter. The Long Shark that we talked we talked about this. Yeah, yeah, in the like discussion. A lot of character actors. Ken Jeong, who is, I'm not sure I would call him an A-lister, but yeah, he's he, a B-plus lister. Yeah, <laughs> B-plus lister. Yeah, let's call him that. Jim Jeffries got a fucking big role in this and like he's not an actor we got the hoff we got the hoff i think this movie was mostly an excuse for hoff to laugh at his um previous shenanigans yes actually in the credits he is listed as the hoff yeah of course he is yep i thought this movie did a lot of showing and telling like they did show but they did a lot of telling yeah they they did that's 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 a bad they did a bad film there the the rule is always show don't tell if you have narration you should always ask yourself is there a way i could display this instead of discourse about this like that's always preferable but that you know sometimes it's not avoidable sometimes it's a stylistic choice i think the the brechtian elements the title cards those were those were fun i think that's just people who contributed like monetarily to the movie. Yeah. 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 There's a lot going on in this movie, but like, it's not worth going to film school about. <laughs> and I'll disagree with you a little bit because okay. I think this movie was pretty tight. You said it should have ended like a couple of times and that's probably correct, but everything else was a pretty tight movie. It clocks in it just under an hour and a half. There's not a lot of, and gristle yeah it's it feels like um and you know just watching the uh the timer on the zencaster here as we're talking about it it feels like there's a bit of a pacing issue the first act takes forever and then the second and third acts are very very small this movie is like 75 percent first act yeah but other than that like look it's a fun movie get absolutely hammered with your friends and watch this stupid piece of shit. It's a fun movie. Yeah. Now on to our ratings. Woohoo. Uh, one thing I will mention before we get there is on IMDb, the average rating is about a 6.6. But if you look into individual scores, 
heavily polarized. You get a lot of high scores and a lot of low scores, and that really makes sense for this movie. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so I think based on like just the quality of the movie, I would say uh I'd probably I'd probably fall in like a five. So perhaps I'm using a different criteria because I'm basing this just off my enjoyment. Yeah. yeah. Rather than like a more objective how is this as a movie. I find this a nine out of ten movie. I think it's so funny. It it is it is very funny. I just I can't imagine my. I had to watch it twice for this because you know I watch every movie that we that we review at least twice. Much like liberal arts, I will never watch this movie again. Not because I dislike it. I just liked liberal arts. This movie, I just like. It's fine. It's not a movie I go seek out. It has its very specific place and time, and I just I don't find myself at keggers very much anymore. You got what you needed out of it. Exactly. And then on the. Scale of obscurity, 1 to 10, uh, what would you say? Oh, God, this is a 2. There are too many big names. It's on Netflix. It's not very well known. The director is hasn't really made a whole lot that's, like, big name in America. But still, like, and I guess the, the advertising budget was precisely dick after paying the, the Hoffs a substantial fee to be in this movie. But I just, yeah, if you, if you, go search Netflix for Ken Jong flicks, this is going to come almost immediately up, and uh, it's pretty easy to find. So I'm going to say two. I can't say I disagree. I think it has become more accessible being on Netflix. The time kind of got washed over, but yeah, not terribly obscure. Yeah. And now, to wrap up our episode... We have our pop culture pop-outs, where we discuss a piece of pop culture that is of interest to us. Awesome. So, why don't you go first, Kyle? Okay. Today, I wanted to highlight a music artist that I'm interested in called Glass Bandit. It is a jazz band out of, I believe, Lawrence, Kansas. And the reason I know about them, because I, I don't know anything about music mostly, but a family friend of mine is in the band and they have some very good music awesome awesome yeah i'll I'll have to check them out so my pop culture pop out is also a musician and it actually connects to the movie so we were talking about when reddix introduces himself he introduces himself as a mononym like madonna and Cher and jewel and those are all like female pop artists who are gay icons my pop culture pop-out is also a female gay icon who happens to be straight, Imogen Heap, who recently came back to the scene. From what I can gather, she had been kind of on a year-long hiatus with a song that has just been living rent-free in my head for months now. I can't get enough of it. It's playing in my head as we speak. It's called Last Night of an Empire. And being an Imogen Heap piece it's a lot of things, and there are some interesting virtual reality thing, like the music video for it. She basically filmed in her barn that she has set up for exactly this purpose, but she did a virtual reality music video for it, which is very interesting. And if you don't know anything about Imogen Heap, she actually makes music using gloves, 
that kind of like sense her position and and like they produce sound and effect based on her hand position so when she's like moving and dancing around she's actually making music doing it and it's very interesting as a reference Imogen Heap is the artist behind the song Hide and Seek, which gave us the musical cue of the mm, what you say mm-hmm. that gained a lot of popularity when SNL used it in their Dear Sister sketch. And also, oh shit. Was it the OC? 90210? They were referencing something else, but I can't remember. Yeah, it was something like that, but it was also in a popular, I'm not sure you would really classify it as hip hop. But I mean, I don't know. Oh, the Jason Derulo song? Jason Derulo. There you go. The Jason Derulo song. A lot to say about that, but I won't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, we don't need to go there. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's where I first heard it because I was never a big fan of like teen soap operas. No, I know it from the SNL sketch. I'm not a big fan of SNL either. Certainly not after this last week's. We can't get into that. No, we can't. We don't have time. We'll be here forever. <laughs> that wraps up our episode today. Catch us in two weeks when we discuss the movie In a World. If you would like, you can follow the link at the bottom of the show notes where you can leave a voice message, perhaps relating to that movie. Or if you want to contribute a pop culture pop out, you're welcome to do so as well. Thank you for listening and goodbye. Bye. Bye.